0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together right here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. As ever, got a good show because I've got a good guest. My guest is Randy Seuss. You don't know Randy, but you're going to after this show. You're going to be glad you met him. Randy has been in my audience probably five or six different times (laughs) because over the course of the years... He has been obviously at events where I spoke and I have done a lot with Washington Wheat. So that probably tells you what this guy's background is. He's a wheat farmer turned political activist lobbyist, not activist, political lobbyist, political involvee. He's a former chairman of U.S. Wheat Associates. So U.S. Wheat Associates has been a client of mine. Washington Wheat has been a client of mine. The tri-state convention they have out there in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. He lives too, not too far from Spokane. In fact, that's where I met him first when I did a thing at the lovely uh, old hotel in downtown Spokane. So Randy Seuss, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am glad you came along. We've got a lot to cover. First off, you're not my first wheat farming guest. Darren Padgett was in episode number 59, and you know Darren. He's from across the river there in Oregon. And uh, he's also about a foot and a half taller than you and me. But anyway
1: probably two you're not, feet taller <laughs> you're,
0: you're not the first week guest all right so I gave the introduction what did I miss
1: uh that I'm retired farmer that uh but I'm still active I guess that's the thing and uh they couldn't find somebody to still be our county wheat growers president so I've volunteered revolunteered re-volunteered for the fifth time now to be county wheat grower president and be active still in the association
0: all right, so lots of stuff to cover. First off, they talk a lot in the ag circles about the aging American farmer, you know, that the average age is almost 60 right now, like 58 and a half or 59 and a quarter or something like that. And you are 67 years old. You hung it up a couple of years ago because even though a lot of farmers can stay with it until their 70s because there's a lot of automation, you were getting banged up. Your knees were hurting and you said, I'm done with this. And so you uh, are a farm owner but not an active farmer anymore
1: that is correct yep I had put up with my knee problems for a couple of years and decided uh, life's too short to keep living like that
0: so you've owned the land you're not too far from uh, you're not too far from Spokane which is eastern Washington a lot of people as I always say when people think of these big western states they think of Seattle or they think of Portland but it's a little different over where you are tell us about it
1: Completely. All of eastern Washington really is farm country. Most people don't realize that. And the majority of wheat we grow is soft white wheat, and 90% of that is exported to mainly Asian customers. So uh, all this export business that's working its way through trades and tariffs right now is, is pretty darn important for us in our industry.
0: So, most of your wheat from the Pacific Northwest gets on a boat and goes to Asia, am I right?
1: That's correct.
0: What's it get made into?
1: Most of it goes to cookies, crackers, cakes, pastries, and some noodle blends. We've lost out quite a bit on the noodle market to Australia, and we're hoping to recapture that with some new varieties that have been developed recently.
0: (laughs) uh so you uh, and we're gonna cover a little bit about that in a minute but uh what else now you were the former chairman of u.s wheat associates what's that organization do
1: it's the international marketing arm of the wheat industry so you you have your national association of wheat growers that does the lobbying within the country but u.s wheat is more concerned on the trade and marketing around the world and uh to selling to our customers and keeping them happy. We actually don't sell a single bushel of wheat, but we promote the sale of that. And that's what I spent quite a few years, 11 years actually doing.
0: With U.S. Wheat Associates, it's the promotional arm. It's not the research arm. It's the promotion, and it's on an international side. Your That's job is right. to go and find markets to say, hey, you want U.S. wheat.
1: Yeah, and here's the reason why, and we bring them. We'll either go over to their country and visit with them, or we'll have them come to the United States and go to places like the Wheat Marketing Center where they can actually try out different kinds of our wheat and see how it performs when producing the thing, the products that they want
0: okay so you're 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 kind of uh you have been around and you also were a pretty busy guy because you were still farming when you did the u s wheat associates gig so uh, how many acres of how many acres were you farming?
1: I farmed thirteen hundred and fifty acres, so when you look back at all the previous people that have probably been in u s wheat most of them came from very large farms and they had lots of hired men and that was not the case with me. I was a one man operation when the tractor didn't move, nothing happened on my place. <laughs>
0: yeah, and so you can't grow wheat every year. You grow wheat where you live on a three-year rotation. You said
1: that's right. Yeah, okay. it depends on the higher rainfall areas is pretty much annual cropped, and you get out into the drier parts of the state, and it gets cleared down to half and half. It'd be like half winter wheat and half summer follow
0: okay so you could farm yours every year and then every third year you put it in wheat that's the years you actually made money because the other two years you got well you put a lesser crop out is that right that's
1: right that is correct
0: and those crops were garbanzo beans and something else
1: and malting barley
0: okay so if you had
1: malting contract you actually made a little bit more money than just growing feed barley but not a lot more
0: got it so Chairman of the U.S. Wheat Associates for 13 years made you a politically active person and you are, uh, you're a kind of person that keeps up a lot. You, you know, you're one of those guys, you don't just hunker down and go out to the shop and work on your tractor. You're one of those guys that has always kept up with the global business of agriculture, which is why you've been involved. And you're still involved more so at the state and local level now. But before we get into that, you talked about trade. Your wheat goes overseas from that whole part of the world. How important to the USA is wheat from the Pacific Northwest?
1: Oh, boy. That's that's a huge thing for us here in the Northwest. I mean, if we can't sell in Japan, you know, traditionally was our number one customer. They've actually fallen down to number two. Philippines is number one. We still have these trade issues with uh, Japan. We didn't sign the TPP. Uh, We're losing out on markets to Canada and Australia, two of our biggest competitors. You think
0: Australia and Canada basically swooped in to fill the void that we would have have had? Do you think TPP was the biggest mistake?
1: I think it was. I think it could have been tweaked. I realize there's some things in there that didn't make a lot of people happy, but I still think if we could have tweaked it, it would have been a big thing for us. And so now we're working on these you know, bilateral trade issues instead of doing these multilateral ones. And and wow. hopefully we'll get there, but they take a long time to develop.
0: They take a long time to develop. You know that because of your 13 years with U.S. Wheat Associates. For you listeners, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, TPP was the Trans-Pacific Partnership a deal that had the framework set up for, uh, it, worked, it worked through for several years and was about to become a deal. And then both Hillary and Donald, when running for president in 2016, both said it was not a good deal for the United States and they would both pull us out. And honestly, agriculture probably took the biggest brunt on that because the reasons they pulled out were for protecting some other union jobs. Am I correct?
1: It is correct. You know, and what the sad thing was, it was really looking, when we look at our where our future of our market's going to be, it's going to be in Southern Asia, because those countries are finally developing their middle class and they're going to have more dollars to spend. And, uh, that's where we really missed the boat on this whole thing. Cause we already had Japan, Korea, Philippines, Taiwan already in, you know, in our basket already. Now, then it was going to be adding Vietnam and Indonesia and Malaysia. And those would have been so important to us for future marketing. Okay. So by,
0: and, and now that's not a lot of population. I mean, is it really the end of the world? What are we talking about? A hundred million people or so between the
1: 300? Yeah, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world. So it's pretty significant when you add all those up. really is, more than you think.
0: Indonesia is a little smaller than the U.S. Well, a couple hundred million, I think I read. Yeah,
1: yeah. The U.S. would be, yep, it's third. So
0: we would have loved to sold wheat to those people. What else, from where you are out there, what else happens? What else, what else happens in agriculture? Because Washington has a boatload of stuff, from grapes to apples to hops, like 90-some percent of the – hops grown in the United States are grown right there in, uh, isn't it Yakima?
1: Yeah, that's really what hit us the hardest because Washington actually is the biggest trade dependent state in the nation. And so it wasn't just wheat industry that got affected by all this. It was everything else, you know, all all the different commodities and so it was it was really hard for us to to bear and now we're boy if we don't get something changed in a hurry that farmers are really going to be hurting.
0: Okay so you just said something I'll make sure to clarify this for our listeners. You said Washington's the most trade dependent state is that for everything or for agriculture?
1: For agriculture. Okay. Yep. So for we, egg- yeah. Well, we,
0: we might have grapes or we might have Washington apples might come to my part of Indiana sometimes but for yep. the most part those apples go somewhere else or the right. hop or the wheat or what are the other ones?
1: And it's got to be pretty close, just everything, because you think of Boeing and Microsoft, you know, and and Apple all being here, and and there's there's a lot of big tech industries here in our state. So a lot of stuff gets exported here. That's true, right?
0: Absolutely, and obviously potatoes. I've been to Washington for potatoes quite a bit. Most people always think of Idaho, but Washington's two behind Idaho, if I'm not
1: absolutely. They are number two behind Idaho. A lot of those
0: things get put on a boat and go overseas. So on the trade thing. What's your take? Uh, something had to happen with China. China's ripping us off. I've actually said, I think something's going to get worked out because they need us as a consumer. You know, when we're buying 380 billion more of their crap than they're buying off of us each year, they need us pretty badly. Now they won't admit that they're trying to, they're playing, they're in a game of chicken, but we needed to probably do something because of the intellectual property and the distortions. What's your take?
1: I completely agree with that. The sad thing is we've known this for China for forever. We've got these things in the wheat industry called tariff rate quotas, and this is through the World Trade Organization. All these countries have be agreed to buy so much wheat from us, but duty-free, and they went away from that. And so we had the right to sue these people in WTO, but it just takes forever. We've won a few trade cases against China, but... Uh, By and large, we're still missing out on, I think, being able, we should be suing a lot of countries under WTO, but WTO just doesn't have the teeth to enforce it, and it just takes forever. Uh, uh, To get something done through them may take five years.
0: Okay, so so we've known this from China for a long time. You're a firm you're a firm believer that something needed to happen here, but you don't think the TPP was something we should have drawn. So we should have used TPP to our strength as a as a billy club on China and say we're going to trade with everybody else. By pulling out of that, it did kind of did kind of weaken our hand, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, that was exactly what it did, and and what we were hoping to have happen.
0: All right. Political activism, if you will, Now, I'm not talking about marching down the street and marching against Monsanto, but you've been active politically with wheat and you've told us what you did. Uh, what do we all need to do in terms of our political involvement? Because I, I have somebody on Facebook right now, some woman that leans really hard left. And so she's arguing with me and she doesn't really understand <laughs> agricultural <laughs> economics because she's convinced the reason that soybean prices are low is because of, uh, of China and us having a trade spat. And I said, well, that that's, that's hurt us, but also the market is set by supply, not just because of them putting a tariff on it. What, what do you see all of us needing to do besides try and educate people like her?
1: Well, it's exactly that. But how do you educate people? I mean, our spokesman review newspaper doesn't even have anybody that covers ag issues anymore. So how can you get that message out? We all know that we need to tell our story, but they just really don't care. It seems like one way or another.
0: Yeah, there's dead on. Well, and like I said, the misinformation, this particular individual took this as a reason to gripe about Donald Trump. And I I didn't even start off that way, simply saying uh, soybean prices aren't uh, where they are because of uh, trade spat. They're where they are because there's a boatload of soybeans. Right. What about wheat? Is there too much wheat?
1: There's a lot of wheat in the world, and we're really losing out to to big time to the Black Sea region. They're uh, producing more and more wheat than, than ever before. I can remember 15 years ago, we sent a group over from the Washington Grain Commission, and they went over to that region and looked around, and they came back and said, be prepared. They're getting it figured out. They're finally doing research and development. They're working better crops with us uh, as, as far as getting new varieties so they've come a long ways and we're talking
0: about countries that end in stan when you say the black sea region yep. kazakistan yep. yeah yep. mm-hmm.
1: yep. russia ukraine yep that cool. whole area boy they're just they're producing a lot and it's not we the only thing we're hanging our head on right now in washington is that we grow quality wheat and so we ask a little bit more for it and Russia doesn't have the quality. And so when it comes to countries buying, when the only thing they care about is price, they get those, those markets.
0: What makes quality wheat? What's the difference between your wheat in the state of Washington, and uh, wheat that comes out of Russia?
1: consistency. Not only do we have a consistent crop, we can't grow corn and soybeans here in Washington, so we grow wheat and we do a real good job at it. So if a customer is looking for a a stable supply year after year, you're going to get it from our area. And also the quality then is back into the products that they make. So those cookies and crackers and maybe Japanese sponge cakes that they're making. So. they, it just it makes a good consistent product and they don't have to worry about tweaking their factories or tweaking their flour every single year.
0: I understand now so. Uh, Dear listener listening to the business of agriculture podcast time for our little commercial break. And you're saying, Damien, you got a sponsor? Of course I have a sponsor. It's me, Damien Mason. You can find me at DamienMason.com. You probably already have, you know, I do speeches at agricultural events all over North America. So if you have a meeting coming up, whether it's in 2019 or even 2020 we're starting to put things on the calendar, please call or email. My lovely wife, Lori, will set you up. Also, if you are a business owner and you are, a business person because you're listening to the business bag podcast reminder that the do business better my new business book came out april 2nd and i want you to know about do business better buy it it makes a great gift for the business-minded person in your life back to randy seuss political involvement you live in washington it's on the left coast you've got issues you've got issues with your governor explain
1: well, one of the biggest ones right now. Not only was the governor, but we also had a change in our state legislature, where he, uh, the Democrats, control both the House and the Senate. So pretty much anything that he wanted to get passed was passed this last legislative session. But since he's running, every about every five to ten years, they take a run at trying to take out the four dams on the Snake River. And now that he's the environmental guy, they're working really hard on doing that. They passed a study where they're going to take a look at, they're going to spend $750,000 to see uh, what effect that will have on taking those dams out of the Snake River, even though these are federal dams. And to add insult to injury, now they're not only tying it to the loss of salmon habitat, the Chinook salmon that are in those rivers, but now they're saying that the southern resident killer whales that are in the Puget Sound are being affected by our dams. Not the ones on the Columbia, only ones on the Snake, because they're keeping those Chinook from getting there, and that's their major source of food. But if you look at your geography map, you're going to realize that the Snake River is a long ways away from Puget Sound. A lot of things just don't make an awful lot of sense, but we realize that, you know, no no one wants to lose these orcas, and the pod has like 75 orcas in it right now. It's not a very big pod, but they don't realize that there's other things going on, and one of them is that the Fraser River, which is in British Columbia, runs into the Puget Sound, doesn't have any dams on it, and they got a shortage of Chinook salmon in it, too. So there's, there's more things going on than just the dams causing these problems.
0: Okay, so let's get back up just for a second because you cover a lot of ground right there for our listeners that are not familiar with the Pacific Northwest or haven't kept up with the 23 current Democratic candidates for president. The Washington governor's last name is?
1: Inslee. 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 J. Inslee. Inslee. Yep.
0: He is one of the 23 people that has thrown their hat in the ring for the Democratic Party nomination to be president.
1: He is. He wants to be known as the environmental president. Okay, so he's so doing everything his old push, for his old push is environmentalism,
0: and he's not really pulling very well at this moment. He's getting less than 1%, but he's probably hoping, if nothing else, maybe he ends up as the EPA administrator. Is that what that's,
1: I'm a, that's what everybody says.
0: Okay. So he's got, a, and he's, of course, he's in a state that just. Absolutely hugs trees for a you know for a hobby. So he's thinking if I show the people of Washington how environmentally uh, you know in tune I am, it'll at least ensure that I can stay governor of Washington.
1: Yeah, we hope not. <laughs>
0: we <laughs> hope not. Okay, and also from a geographical standpoint, the Columbia River divides Washington from Oregon, right? That's right. Where's yep. the Snake River?
1: the Snake River's on the southern side too. So it goes over and starts over in Idaho and and runs on the southern boundary of of Washington, runs into the Columbia River. So it it does it's got the four dams on it that produce electricity that 3,000 megawatts. People don't think it's a, it's a lot, but each one of those powers 300,000 homes and uh we just, one of the things the legislature passed was we have to be completely green when it comes to electrical production by the year 2045. So, that means no coal, and uh, it also means that you can't have any natural gas. So, if we don't have these dams, where are we going to get this electricity? It's You know, it's going to have to come from solar and wind, and, and they won't even talk nuclear anymore. I don't know where, because we just don't have good storage. If we had a way of storing electricity, it'd be different, but we really don't. So
0: what you're saying is 1.2 million homes, which is a lot of homes in Washington state are powered because of these four dams, the environmentalist argument, or at least the political initiative a lot of times is Randy, I'm going to pretend that I care about the environment to bring along my base, but really I don't care. But I can give a lot of lip service to this. Do you think he really wants to tear out those dams? Or do you think he wants to pretend that he is Mister Environmentalist and that's something that's popular with the uh, Green uh, Greenpeace?
1: I think he wants to tear those dams out. They're, him and a lot of other people think that's going to solve a lot of problems they have, but they just don't look at all the other things, the effect it's going to have. You know, when that's that's how we get our wheat from our area, barge down those rivers to Portland so it can be loaded on those export ships. And it's roads, rivers, rails. Well, if if we were going to take those dams out, it would take an additional 135,000 semis to get that wheat down to, to Portland. And so then you're talking wear and tear on the roads. You're talking safety, a bigger carbon footprint. Well,
0: I was going to say from a standpoint of environmentalism, 135,000 annual semi-trips from your part of the world to Portland, Oregon, it sounds like a, a pretty bad deal for the environment.
1: It does. It doesn't. I mean, it's clean and green, but you know, our our dams are not considered a renewable resource. Water running downhill is not a renewable.
0: Okay, think about this, because I I want you to explain it. If those dams were blown up because of the the idea that somehow it's hurting our salmon population, what's that do to agriculture? You're saying that shipping becomes more hazardous or unpredictable, or why can't you go down the river?
1: Once again, 135,000 additional trucks on the road. Or everybody says, well, you, just, you put it on a railroad cars." Well, the railroad's almost at capacity. That's the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. And unless they double track everything down from our area all the way down to Portland, which is not going to happen, cost too much money, we're almost at capacity when it comes to rail. How else are we going to get our crop to market? That's just how
0: many, how many miles of rail is that from Spokane area to Portland you're talking well- about? Yeah, it's a lo-
1: yeah. Actually, the the, thing, the one to look at is because it makes uh, Lewiston, Idaho, a port. Lewiston, Idaho is 465 miles. It's an inland port. 465 miles down to the ocean from there. Okay. So, yeah.
0: So here's the here's the thing. Uh, you can't go down if the dams are blowing up. Does it just make it so that you can't put barges on safely, or is it going to make seasonal problems?
1: Nope. No, you wouldn't be able to put them on it at all.
0: No, because, we,
1: because you got to have that slack water behind the dams to float the barges to uh, get it down there. So there's just no other way. So you'd have to load it on trucks or load it on the rail. I So understand. those trucks would have to, where the export facilities are in Portland, you have to drive through downtown Portland traffic with a semi. Yeah, that's that's true.
0: So that's going to be an issue. There's a lot of this we've seen, Randy, with politically motivated uh, moves disguised as environmentalism. Another one that happened, I read about, your governor also was uh, preventing trains hauling coal from Wyoming to go through the state of Washington to get to the port. Uh, That seems like a real good way to create a war with another state. Uh, And I don't know, I think the people in Wyoming are probably better armed than the people in Washington. But what, what do you say?
1: Well, there's also another one besides that. Now, the oil that comes from the Bakken Fields is coming through Washington. It has a certain PSI level that that oil has to be at, and our state is going to demand that it be lower than the federal national average. And so then we're going to tick all those people off, too. So it's just not the coal. But, uh, you know, they, they convince these people that these oil trains coming through here just explode all the time. And they do, they drive through right downtown Spokane, right through the middle of it. And if they had a, a problem, it would be a disaster, but they make it sound like this happens all the time. And, you know, it just, it just really doesn't.
0: Yeah. So what do you see? What do you see happening there? I mean, are we going to get to where then the state of Washington, uh, you can't drive through there, uh, if you if you're hauling some fossil fuel.
1: Makes you wonder. I mean, they tried to put in one of these coal export facilities on the coast, you know, because a lot of this coal is going to to China. Right. It's not only our state, but lots of states are just saying we got to get out of the coal business anymore for producing electricity. So it's, I think it's who who knows where it's going to end up.
0: Speaking of political stuff. Is this coming to the rest of America? You've been around this a long time. You were with US Wheat Associates for 13 years. You you still involve yourself with the State of Washington Wheat Growers Association. You go to the capital in Olympia. What do you see?
1: I see that we try to get people, we try to explain to them things that are happening, but you know, it's, it's a real difficult thing. We're just so far removed from the farms anymore. People used to be just a couple of generations, now we're three or four generations. Just like the, with the, or trying to save the orcas, one of the biggest things people won't even talk about is pollution going into Puget Sound. You know that Victoria, British Columbia, dumps a raw sewage into Puget Sound, and has been doing so. That's a city of 400,000 people. Been doing guess, it for 100
0: years, and yeah. raw sewage from a 400,000-person city is dumping into Puget Sound, but tearing out the dams uh, up where you are so we can't move wheat around yeah. to save Puget Sound.
1: 26 and a half million gallons a day, 9.7 billion gallons a year of sewage going in there. And and Seattle has plant failures where they dump 30 million gallons of sewage into the Puget Sound. And they say that these orcas aren't being affected by that. Well, I think they need to take a long look.
0: We see this all the time with agriculture. You know, if a, if a hog, if a hog facility has a boo boo, because we get six inches of rain and a uh, manure lagoon uh, breaches, by God, it's an environmental catastrophe, but the town that uh, is, you know, upstream here that uh, many of these towns in my part of the world, their sewage plants are right along the river and almost, it seems as though their infrastructure plan was count on at least once per year where you get a goose drowner and it just go ahead and purge the system. Yeah. Well, there's,
1: there's 4 million people that live around Puget Sound. And you just think of the things like the, the runoff from the highways, gas, oil, Salt. You know, antifreeze, you know, you got everything going in there. Brake dust is all running in there.
0: Lawn lawn yeah. chemical. There's the lawn. Yeah, lawn chemical. chemicals. Yeah. It's
1: all going in there and they they just don't take that into account that it's it's the four dams that's causing the problem.
0: I was thought that was an interesting deal on the opposite coast that um... And Chesapeake Bay was was struggling for a long time uh, from a standpoint of its health. And it was blamed on the chicken operations in Maryland. And there might be something to that, but nobody ever thought about all those suburban homes that have uh, have Kim long come out or true green come out and spray their yard with chemical fertilizer, chemical herbicide, et cetera, et cetera, on slopes that slope into the Puget, into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, so as usual, agriculture, becomes the easy enemy because we're completely outnumbered. Right. So right. we see this happening and the rest of, you know, is this coming to the rest of us? We always say what starts on the coast ends up here in Indiana. Eventually I can say that on the one hand, this Lake Erie has an algae issue and they, they really have decided, you know, there is some agriculture is culpable because of uh, phosphates and we don't want to have algal blooms in Lake Erie. So I can see that we have to take some responsibility. But in general, when they give us an alternative or an ultimatum, agriculture says, great, more buffer strips, we'll cut back on our usage, whatever. But my God, when, when can you finally just, when do you get put out of business?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it it comes down to that. There's getting to be less and less farmers. Nationally, we're less than 1% of the population. So you know how that goes when it comes to representing you and your state legislature or federally. We just don't have the numbers out there anymore. So people just don't seem to listen to a lot of what we have to say.
0: There's no question. You know, we, uh, even in the agricultural community, like I live here from the standpoint of property taxes, you, you know, property tax relief is always thrown at the houses because every house has a voter, but every acre of cornfield doesn't. Right. So, so people can say, yeah, but you know, they don't really value your acre of farm ground uh, as, as a real value. I said, well, what difference does it make? It still takes a crap load of my uh, yeah. property tax dollars. And you know, that acre of corn has never needed a school or a fire department ever in its entire existence, which your house did and your kids did.
1: Well, there's there's advertisements that have come on TV when we're talking about these dams that have just been outrageous. And, and one shows a couple of goldfish in a blender, and then they turn the blender on. <laughs> and so you, you get that visual impact. And yet the reality is these, these turbines only turn... Uh, about one, one revolution a second, so 60 RPM. So they're really slow. They're blunt-ended. They don't have sharp edges on them. The, these things are all fish-friendly. There's, there's so many things that we've done to help these salmon. 97% success rate over each dam as those smolter coming down. Is
0: there, is there any indication that the salmon are, are worse in the Snake River? You said that they're not, so it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? It doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. The facts don't
1: matter. It's, It's cyclical things. You know, things like ocean conditions really make a big difference. And we get El Nino and La Nina that changes these temperatures. They don't always come back in the big numbers, but they try to say, well, 200 years ago, we had this many fish. Well, I'm sorry. They don't know how many fish we have. Who
0: who was there to count the fish? Yeah, that's right. But these are not (laughs) issues of facts. This is why I tell my ag audiences, Randy, and you know, because you've been my ag audience, that facts aren't the issue. Look at the chemical lawsuits, and Bayer is out here still arguing about the scientific safety of glyphosate. And I said, you you lost that the minute you walked into the courtroom. It's an emotional argument. They're going to show somebody with cancer and then and then bring out a company that's been maligned for the last 20 years. Evil Monsanto killed this person. It's, and that's what you got now with the fish going through a blender. It's not a factual statement. So do you think the, the dams come out?
1: I hope not. And I think we've got, you know, once again, this is a federal issue. These are federal dams. And we're actually doing federal studies, impact statements and stuff. And uh, But I don't think in the short term, no, I don't think we're going to see those dams removed i really don't
0: so maybe I agriculture wins like, because somewhere somehow along the line somebody actually has a a, a a sensible a sensible approach to this when you look at the business of agriculture randy as a 67 year old farm guy been around a lot what do you feel good about when you look at ag
1: that I think how we're saving soil anymore, we're using such better methods of applying uh, pesticides anymore with with GPS units, we don't overlap, we don't skip, you only put on the right amount. People just think we have nothing better to do and go out and put pesticides out someday and it's too expensive to do that. You only put out what you absolutely need. So I think, I think we've come a long way. We've got new varieties that are, that are improving our bottom line. And I see a lot of success with just less farmers in the future.
0: Yeah, I I do too. There's going to be less farmers just because of economies of scale, but also the fact that the automation makes it possible. I think we're doing a great job on soil and on conservation also. Bold predictions, final thoughts, give it to me. Anybody in agriculture, what's Randy Seuss, the, the, the wheat farmer turned politician in Washington, what's he think?
1: I think one of the things I heard on the radio today was that that uh, people weren't concerned about agriculture and they were pretty unhappy that the federal government was thinking about giving farmers a big payment and they would rather see it go somewhere else. But those people don't realize they got to eat every day. Where's their food going to come from if farmers all go broke and we don't have agriculture in the United States anymore? So I think it's going to be pretty dang important that we keep farmers in business.
0: Yeah, and of course, I I do get the questions a lot from my suburban friends, and I say, hey, I'm against welfare also, but I'll tell you the one thing. The policy of the United States Department of Agriculture, my brother works for them, will even tell you, is to at least keep you guys solvent and at least keep you – Uh, your head above water because we need enough producers in all around this geography. So that way, when it's wet, like it is in Indiana, somebody somewhere is in business and can produce a crop that year. So I, I think that that's probably a good policy also. Hey, Randy Seuss has been my guest talking about politics, wheat and the reality of environmental causes coming to you disguised as environmental causes, I should say, when they're really political initiatives, aren't they? They are. (laughs) Thank you for joining me from all the way out in Washington state. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. I'm your host, Amy Mason.